Hello sword people, welcome to the Sword Guy podcast. This is your host, Dr. Guy Windsor, consulting swordsman, teacher and writer. Join me for interviews with historical fencing instructors and experts from a wide range of related disciplines as we discuss swords, history, training and bring the joy of historical martial arts into our modern lives. I'm here today with Joe York, who is a provost of the Hotspur School of Defence and an entrepreneur in her work life, as well as, she says, an avid listener of the show. So, without further ado, Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Guy. Great to be here. Ah, it's nice to meet you, love. I'm. Your name is familiar to me because you have bought a lot of my stuff. <laughs> 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 I buy everything. In fact, I was the f- I'm sometimes the first person to I buy know, some of your stuff. Which is why I know it's like, oh, oh, I've made a sale. <laughs> Hooray. Oh, and it's Joe again. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so just to orient everybody, whereabouts in the world are you? I am in lovely sunny today, Whitley Bay, which is in the northeast of England uh, near Newcastle. Okay, is that where you're from? No, originally from Yorkshire, near York. Enough for it to be really confusing when trying to pre-order things in shops when you leave your surname. That's how close to York. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Nairsborough is about where I'm actually from, which is a uh, uh, if you uh, want to know what medieval England uh, medieval England theme park would look like, Nairsborough is pretty much it, I guess. <laughs> okay, and, and York is a close second. I mean, it's yeah, definitely it's... yeah, but it doesn't have a witch. You see, it doesn't have a witch. Doesn't have a witch. A witch. So a witch. Yeah. So uh, Nesborough, like weird fact, Um, Nesborough. It was the first official tourist attraction, I think, in the entire country, and it has a place called Mother Shipton's Cave. Oh, I've heard that. Yeah, it was based on a uh, the woman herself said some things that she probably shouldn't have but the victorians took it and ran with it and made poems about how she predicted lots of suspiciously very victorian inventions <laughs> that oh we've just found this thing she talked about like uh metal ships and machines and things like that anyway so yeah it's uh i was destined to love history i think growing up in that <laughs> well i spent last so i spent last weekend in bath which is like a time capsule for the late 1800, late 1700s it was just it's very pretty but i think there's a, there's a i don't know up, up further north you get a, it's more like it's less preserved to be preserved it's more preserved just because that's how everybody likes to do things <laughs> yeah, you get a feeling that bath has been artificially preserved by rich people deciding they don't want it to change whereas i think maybe York, that's where it's more like this is there's just no reason to change it. Yeah, I mean, sometimes there are reasons to change York, (laughs) gotta drive around it, like that's a terrible idea, but yeah, that's good. And um, Nesbra's done a really good job of keeping a lot of its charm. I was was back there last um, weekend actually because we have a a thing called Bed Race, which is imagine, yeah, so Nesbra is on a crag and it overlooks. The River Nid, and there's a, a very famous view of like the viaduct with the bridge. Um, and um, what we do is we get like imagine a hospital bed with slightly slightly bigger wheels. 
Okay. And uh, we raised them. I say we, I've never done this, although I have sort of committed to it now. Um, <laughs> we raised them along along waterside, up the crag, and it's a really steep hill. Hang on. Okay. Is somebody in the bed? Yeah, yeah. So you have somebody sat on the bed, and I think bed. there's there's I think there's about eight people. This might not be right, but there's a few people, eight people that are allowed to push it, and it's a time okay. trial. And they go all the way up there, all along waterside, all the way up this crag, round the marketplace, down the high street, round the corner, and then if it's a re- if it's really good weather, through the river at the bottom. Okay. And it's uh, a time trial, and there's a fancy dress element to it as well. That <laughs> so, that does sound like a lot of fun. I think I think I would be best placed on the bed. I don't see myself as running up and down yeah. hills pushing beds myself. Yeah, no, it's incredibly, incredibly difficult. Um, but yeah, so I was back there last weekend actually, which is probably why like it's very much um, uh, at the the forefront of my um, memory on history and stuff. But like it's yeah, it's a. I would definitely recommend people go. It's a really good day trip. There's even like a talking raven. So, you know, what else do you need in the castle courtyard? It's very there's Yorkshire. A, it's hilarious. So there's a talking raven in the castle. Yeah. And it's just, and we're talking about a genuine raven, like not, not a mechanical it, thing. No, no, it's a real, it's a real bird. Uh, I think one of them actually might be a South African crow or something. But it, <laughs> And it's hilarious. You can honestly look this up on YouTube. Uh, and it, 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 it does swear at people. But it's famous for saying, you're right, love. You're right, love. You're right, love. <laughs> you don't actually work for the Yorkshire Tourist Board, do you? No, but I could. I mean, it has my I name in it. Could. So, you know. Well, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So, um, how did you stumble upon my old friend Bob Brooks and the Hotspur School? How did that happen? So, I'd been thinking about doing something like this for a couple of years. I did didn't loads of... Um, martial arts in the past but like I did what? I um so I did uh well judo as a kid everybody does that so it probably doesn't actually count um uh capoeira for a bit oh, do you remember that fun. do you remember that time in the 90s where you couldn't buy a mobile phone without seeing like capoeira yes. like I want to do that that looks cool yes. fighting um, while upside down I know, right? Wearing massive trousers. Yeah. Um, there is a theme in my martial arts of can I wear massive trousers in this, to be fair. And, and if, you, if you can't, why would you do it? I know, right? So, uh, yes, yeah, so my uh, gateway into big trousers started, <laughs> started with capoeira. And then um, I did Aikido for about 10 years. Um, and I got to first dan. I actually did my first dan twice. Okay. Um, and again, so you, when you get to your black belt, which is your first dan in um, Aikido, you basically earn your trousers. You earn like yeah, the, these are not yeah the hakama, yeah. the great big black swooshy things. Yeah, yeah. So presumably up to that point, you've just been training in your pajamas for that whole yeah. time, and now now you're allowed to get fully dressed. Um, yes, and that I'll be seems honest, to be the way it is. Yeah, and I stayed and I got involved because I was like, I want a pair of those. That's great. <laughs> um, but yeah, so obviously a lot of it is un, uh, like open hand, un, unweaponed, unweaponed. Yeah. That's, that's a phrase. Um, open hand fighting. Um, so uh, that's good. But uh, my favorite bits are always when we brought out the daggers or the staff, which is called a Joe. So obviously there's yeah. an affinity Perfect. there. Yeah, 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 yeah. Or like the Bokkens. And I was always wanting to do 
more of that and I would turn around and go this is great and everyone would be like mm, yeah can we just go back to the normal stuff and I'm, right fine um so then uh, it got a bit political a martial art getting political surely not. really <laughs> <laughs> I've never heard of that before in, anyway, in, what, way, in what way political um so uh my main instructor is one of my best friends in the world actually and he's been my okay. like, business partner for years and um he when he needed aikido most uh the i'm not sure if this was engineered this way but it seemed like the head of the organization basically took it away from him but because i was uh. running the business at the time i didn't realize uh actually how how much friction there was into this still being a thing for him that he needed in a very very difficult time um and i only found out about it over like subsequent years and it just got harder and harder to Turn, I mean, I went to training because I saw my friends there, but it just got harder and harder to want to progress in that environment. Right. Um, yeah, it's, uh, yeah, he's quite a, this, this will probably be cut out, but he's quite, he's quite a Marmite character, that particular guy. Um, <laughs> okay. And uh, so, yeah, yeah, okay. Aikido for, for schools the, are available. <laughs> yeah, for, for the Americans who don't know Marmite, Marmite is something you either absolutely love it or you can't stand it. Hence Marmite character, yeah. Yeah, actually, no. That's I, that might not be true. I think he's just he rubs people up up the wrong way. I think that's probably not even Marmite. I think you like him okay. for a while. Anyway, other Aikido schools are available, um, okay. but uh, yeah. So I learned an awful lot about body mechanics, um, which I think has given me a really good head start in you know the world of HEMA. But I was looking for something else that was somebody a teacher that I could really. Like, not not believing, that sounds weird, but, like, a teacher that, like, I liked, that I trusted, that I knew that was good, and I walked in and I met Bob, and I'm like, he is the opposite of that guy. This is somebody that I really like, that I trust, that just the way that he did this first time I saw him cut, like, a straightforward Oberhau with a longsword. I was like, he knows what he's doing. This is different. I'm going to learn so much here. Um... And then they let me pick up a sword and I'm like, I'm staying, take my money. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've known Bob for more than half my life. Um, mm. And yeah, he's a, he's a thoroughly good bloke. Yeah, he is. That's it. I, I, would, I would trust him completely. I mean, we don't always agree on absolutely every detail <laughs> of how swords should be used. I mean, he keeps banging on about this German shit instead of coming to the true Italian religion. <clears throat> I didn't say that. <laughs> um, but, well, I, but, yeah, I know that you disagree on the Italian stuff as well, guys. So that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, but no, he's, he's an absolutely solid bloke for sure. Yeah, um, and I think when you meet somebody that really knows the subject, that you you like, this person has forgotten more than I will probably ever know about this subject, and and I can learn so much from this person and uh he will tell you i mean you know bob he is a talker it's not it's it's the uh asking him to stop telling you about the thing he wants you to know that's the issue not the not the actual <laughs> thing yeah. so yeah i mean i've learned an incredible amount um yeah from from him so uh yeah i've uh, so the reason that i wasn't sure about uh, whether i wanted to 
uh, do HEMA or not is because there was a couple of other things. So there was another sword group in the centre of um, Newcastle who was more of like a performance thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I knew I knew that there was this like, historically accurate... Um, well, that's my... That's that's gonna everyone's gonna neck beard if I say it's historically accurate, historically based, <laughs> like, historically as much as we can. Um, yeah, so we say working towards historical accuracy. Yes, yes, exactly. This other thing, and then I found out we could do um, uh, sparring with it, and none of my martial arts have ever been stress tested. You know, Aikido is very much I will stab you now. Yes. Whereas, and then yes, I, yes, and yeah, and because you have to commit to it. Yeah, I, I have a, a, a friend of mine who's a very, very good Aikido person. He's like, I oh. think he's like fifth or sixth down now. But anyway, yeah. many moons ago, um, when he was younger and, shall we say, more foolish, um, <laughs> he would go down to the dodgier bits of Helsinki on a <laughs> Saturday night and not pick fights with drunks, but let drunks pick fights with him and then very carefully gently lower them to the ground in such a way that they weren't injured but he actually got to practice doing his thing against someone who wasn't cooperating yeah right i mean but amazing but he but he had to go to the dodgier bits of helsinki on a saturday night to find that it wasn't available within (laughs) the mainstream training of the art and i think that that can be a problem for some people yeah yeah it is um i mean (laughs) so when people are being more generous about Aikido, I mean, obviously there's good Aikido, there's bad Aikido. And the problem with um, Aikido is there's so many different styles. So there's the very soft yeah. style that's very much more like interpretive dance and it's a bit more like Tai Chi and it is all about that body mechanics and that sort of control over your body and like moving with purpose all the way up to very direct yeah. techniques. Okay, let me say the absolute, my top, best unarmed sparring I have ever done, right, was with an Aikido guy in, we met in Dallas. I don't think it was the first time we met, but it was the first time we played together. Um, It was a guy called Joe Alvarez. And this is in 2006. Uh, It's still like 16 years ago, and it's still like in my head as this amazing moment. And we found this kind of padded squash courty area, and we just went for it. Right. And I was, you know, doing like Kung Fu stuff and boxing kind of stuff and kicks mm-hmm. and whatnot. And I mean, he's the only Aikido person I've met other than my Helsinki friend. He's the only Aikido person I've met who can actually handle multiple jabs to the face. No problem. Right. Right. Because they don't normally train it. But anyway, yeah. there was this glorious moment where I had come in for something and he'd ended up doing a sacrifice throw. And as his shin came up, towards my groin as he was throwing me over his head as he fell backwards. I caught his shin between my my own shins, which propelled me <laughs> further away, and I rolled, turned, and got we got straight back into it. It was bliss. Brilliant. I love it. <laughs> yeah. But th- that's the thing, isn't it? That so the beauty so the the criticisms about Aikido is yes, you have to learn how to receive the technique. Sure. But part of that is so that the other person can commit to doing that technique. Exactly. And the trust that you have to have between, like, you know, the person doing the technique and the person receiving is huge. If I'm attacking somebody, that I have to, tr- like, I have to trust them not to kill me, and they have to trust me to do the exact 
uh, breakfall or whatever that they need me to not die or lose something important like the functioning use of a hand or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it is, it's beautiful. It is beautiful. But I think a lot of that gets lost in, you know, like, can you use Andy. it on the streets? Um, yeah. What yeah. streets do you live on? I mean, really? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like the absolute, my top tip for, for street defense is live on a nice street. Yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Don't, don't go I mean, to the nasty ones. Yeah. What, what Aikido has been very good at teaching me is don't be where the attack is. If that's a couple of inches out of the way, great. If that's, uh, you know, in, in a completely different room, better. If that's by some l- lifestyle choices that you have the privilege to make, even better. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Except. Yeah. So, um, uh, yes, Aikido. Um, I can't remember how we got there. Why did we get back to Aikido? We're, well, because, because we were talking about not being able to spar. That was, yeah, right. not being able to spar. That's right. So um, I was looking for something where I could stress test because I've never yeah. had that before. Um, and so um, I was looking around um, and when I realized that we could do um, sparring, you know, varying different degrees, there were competitions for this. I thought that was interesting. I hadn't done yeah. that before. And so the sheer span of what is available to to you in HEMA, not even only like weapons, historical periods. If you just love looking through historical text, that you can look at the pictures, that's great. Um, if you uh, really just like stress testing at speed, like, and you don't care about technique, there are tournaments for you. <laughs> there, right. are, there is the whole thing. And I just thought that was abs- absolutely fascinating. Um, and then I think it took me, like all these things, it takes like a couple of, you know, I'm, I'm now going to put my work hat on now and say, you talk about in marketing, like touch points, right? So okay. I think I had a friend that went and trained with Bob um, years ago and said, oh, you like swords and medieval stuff. You, you should go and train there. And I was like, yeah, that, that does sound quite interesting. Um, and then um, there's a couple of other people that had talked about it. And then I saw the BBC documentary that um, Bob was talking about the project that he'd done with the uh, University of Newcastle with the Bronze Age stuff. Oh, yeah, the damage to the edges on Bronze yeah. Age stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, th- I think the documentary was called Britain's Pompeii. Something like that. And, yeah, and I was listening, and I was um, I was watching it, and I was like, "Oh, that's that guy from Newcastle." So I immediately emailed him, okay, um, and said, you know, "Can I can I come along and train?" So it did it did take a little while, um, and then of course when I walked in, I was like, "Why didn't I do this ten years ago?" <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, to be fair, I would say of all the martial arts, historical martial arts generally are improving and developing faster than any other martial art I've come across. Because we're not constrained by what the masters did, in yeah. a sense. You know, my teacher does this, my teacher does that, well, so what? Our teachers have been dead yeah. for centuries. And so we have, you know, as if you think of like martial arts generally, you know, maybe you've got Tai Chi over here where you, the way a lot of people do Tai Chi, there's no, there's no even real contact. Then you've got maybe Aikido and then you've got some of the Kung Fu stuff and then you've got mm-hmm. some Japanese stuff and, 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 there are, there's tournament karate and there's um, like demonstration karate where they, they basically they judge you on how well you do your forms. Mm. Um, and there's sort of, if you like, Okinawan against samurai street combat karate, which is like the traditional thing. So mm. you have all of these all of these varieties of different martial arts, 
with tournament ones and internal ones and ones with no sparring and ones which are all sparring and all, all that breadth. We have all of that breadth within historical martial arts. Some clubs mm. just care about tournaments and they train for tournaments. Other clubs just care about getting the history, historical stuff right and that's what they do. Most clubs have some kind of blend of these things. But mm. we're not constrained by our teachers in the same way that modern traditions often are. So you don't have that. Um, well, in our style, we don't do this, right? Mm. I might say, well, in my club, we tend not to emphasize tournament stuff. We can do that. Mm. You want to go to tournament? That's great. Fine. Um, we suggest maybe go and train with these guys for a few weeks before you go to the tournament because they're, they're really into the tournaments. And it's still all historical martial arts. It's all, all under yeah. that umbrella. Yeah, um, absolutely. So, Yeah, I think, again, um, thinking about my time at Aikido, even in our, um, in my main class where maybe there was about 20 people and the the depth of skill there was exceptional. I was very, very, very lucky to train with those people. Um, But the way, so if we take one specific technique, there would be three or four different ways of doing it. Mm -hmm. Like, so this is, you know, we'd say this was like, um, first pin or whatever um, uh, so in um, Aikido language uh, you know you've got Ikkyo Nikkyo first pin second yeah. pin whatever yeah. um, but like what there's one of them a particular joint lock which I, I won't go into now but um, there are lots of different ways to do it lots of different ways to emphasize different parts of of the underlying principles and so i would often talking about ah well this is how this person does does this technique because they're taller or their limbs are taller or their hands are like this this person does it somewhere like slightly differently because they you know they're working in a different body with different preferences and being able to pick apart this is the same underlying principle with a similar name but it's all the same thing. Just it strips off all of that, like, need to go out. I think actually you'll find you put, you move your finger here. This is the actual technique. Like, it's not, it's an underlying principle with like tactics on top. Mm. And I think that often gets missed in martial arts. And you're right. It's like, no, this is my style. And actually it's your own personal style, right? You're, you have mm. individual parameters of how your body works, what your preferences are, what, solutions you'll find in that particular second and there's tweaks that you can try and some some will work for you and some won't and that's applicable to every single martial art yeah and if you look at for example fiore medieval italian stuff the, the yeah. techniques so-called are called plays yeah. right and it's not because it's like you know no consequences playing around it's because there is play within like yeah. If you are doing this action, if you do it exactly the same way every time against every opponent, it's going to fail sometimes because you yeah. have to adapt it for different opponents, right? Or different, different specific contexts. But the idea is, this is the idea. This is the technique. This is the principle in this particular context. It looks just like this. And so we have the mm. canonical form of the play, which is exactly like the book with exactly the same setup, exactly this, this, and it's all, it's all, specified mm. right but then once you've got it in that context you're supposed to play with it and figure out how you would make that idea work in different contexts and in some contexts it won't work at all in other contexts it will work even better than it does in the canonical play right yeah. but you're supposed to play with it yeah I, yeah and i think 
A lot of people lose that. They look at the pictures and go, no, no, my foot needs to be exactly here. <laughs> which, okay, which when you're doing yeah. the canonical play is true. You yeah. have to know, you have to know the canonical place so that you know, so that you have an example in a physical example of the principle in practice, right? So yes. you, you so, and you know that, okay, this is supposed to work in exactly the situation and you've got to get it to work in that situation and you've got to get it reasonably right so that you can actually see it. So yeah, you can exactly. see the principle, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. So 100%. yeah, it's, but, but yeah. then, but then if, if you're, you know, if you happen to have the wrong leg forward, but but your opponent's sword is under your control and your sword is in their face, that was definitely correct. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Totally agree. And um, yeah, I mean, whilst we're whilst we're talking about theory, I mean, I think one of the things that I think is interesting about Hotspur and the way that Bob sort of like put that. Um, put the structure around it is that we do like almost like a hundred year period. So we do okay. we do lots of different weapons, but we do lots of different sources as well. Okay. Um, and I really enjoy looking looking and comparing the sources. It's like why does Vardy say this is important and under, under what context? Why is why is he emphasizing these bits and Fiore does it this way? And it's not just a, a yes. There's a time period and there's like maybe a different style of fencing. So you know with um, Faulkner or whatever you know it's more of like a tournament fencing. It's more like a factual environment. Whereas like Talhofer definitely wants to kill you. Um, but like it's that they all have underlying principles. They're all talking about the same things, but they're describing them in different ways. And I think once you can piece them together like that you're like ah this is that thing that I need to what am I doing I'm opening my hips and for instance Fiore might do it by doing um, a step across to open up the hips and then turn Talhofer might do it by like moving the back foot in a wind but it's the same principle of like what are your hips doing what is your body doing what are these how can I influence what's happening in a bind by moving the like other bits of my body around it mm. so um Vardy will talk about the knees be, being being keys, right? So that is exactly the same as like same principle as like manipulating your body and how you describe that. People would do it differently, but it just opens up this whole world of like tinkering with individual bits of technique and 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 then working that whole body together. I'd say I just find it absolutely fascinating. Yeah. So what period does Bob cover? Mostly fifteenth uh, century, so we get so okay. Fiore up to uh, most Faulkner recently has been like the the sort of uh, latest one that we've been doing. Uh, when, I do when, other things. Okay, when, <laughs> when when was Faulkner? I've, I've not familiar. Oh, that is a good question. <sighs> it's been Just a very second. long time since I've. <laughs> Oh, I, ju- I should just point out that um, that Joe just took down Captain of the Guild, which I think is um, that's that's Christian Tobler's. Is that right? It is. Yeah. Yes, it is. Uh, I don't know. Christian will probably be able to tell us if that's. <laughs> I think it's very early sixteen hundreds. Well, I was going to say because yeah. you're saying like fourteen hundred, like Faulkner. Sorry, for, by my uh, recollection, yeah. was late sixteenth century, but. But so, I don't know. Anyway, we do that. Cool. <laughs> it's not early enough for poofy pants. So it's definitely not 16th century. Um, yeah. Yeah. So um, 
Yeah, I, re- I, really, I really enjoy that looking at a complete system and then working out what, are this, what does it have in common? Why is it different? What are the different tactics uh, to solve similar problems? I find that absolutely fascinating R- rather than just concentrating on one master's work, which, which I know has yeah, happened. I mean, you spend a lifetime doing that. Yeah, I mean, I, I take an even sort of broader historical view, mm. right? I do... Fiore, which is like the early 15th century stuff, and Vadi because it's sort of connected and I, I just like Vadi. Um, yeah, and then too. Rapier, Capoferro and whatnot. I kind of skipped the 16th century for reasons we don't need to go into. Um, <laughs> but so I've got like Rapier, Rapier and Dagger, that sort of thing. And then 18th century stuff, Small Sword and Sabre. Yeah. Right? So if you think about it, I've got like Long Sword, big cutty weapon, yeah. Sabre, shorter cutty weapon, I also do a bit of Messer of Fulton and whatnot, because why not? Yeah. They're lovely. Yeah. Um, and then Rapier, long thrusty weapon, uh, small sword, short and thrusty weapon, and of course daggers, mm. very short thrusty weapon. Mm. Right. And all the kind of accompaniment. So weapons in two hands, weapons, mm. uh, so sword and buckler, because I do medieval sword and buckler as well, so from yes. 133, which is like my earliest thing. Yeah. Um, so sword and buckler, sword and dagger, sword and cape, all that sort of stuff. So I, I, I don't even really think of it in these terms. But when I, when I look back at it, it's like sidearms from 500 years, right? And what I'm really interested in is how do these different weapon types behave differently, mm. right? And what context was this weapon developed for? I mean, very obviously the rapier was developed for a different use than the knightly longsword. Yes. Right? Yeah. They're similar in many ways, but the use case is different, and so the weapon is different. And how much is the change in the weapon changing how it's used, or the change in the intended use changing the design of the weapon? And how much mm. of it is simply just fashion? Right? Yeah, yes. <laughs> I mean, a lot, of, a lot of it, a lot of it is just fashion. Yeah. Some, 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 you know, bellwether person like I don't know, king of France or whatever decided that he wanted a sword like this, started wearing one, now everybody wants one. Yes. Right? Yeah. So, but yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm not a fan of being restricted to one system. And even if you yeah. are, let's, let's say I was just doing Capoferro, right? If that was my only thing I was interested in doing. To mm. understand Capoferro properly, I would still have to study what came before, what came yes. after, and what was being done at the same time that was different. Yeah, of course. Yeah. 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 So I think of it as like a cross. You know, you put your your target system in the middle, and yes. there's what came before, what came after, and what was happening um, at the same time. So on either side. Yes. And that, because one one book cannot possibly contain all of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Of course. And 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 then there's there's the fact that the actual author themselves, you might just resonate with the way that somebody writes or describes right. something better, which is why I buy everything. Like like <laughs> I buy all your books, all everyone else's books. If anybody wants me to, uh, I, I, I'm to sorry, read their Joe, books clearly, no, 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 I'm very happy for you to be reading my books and buying my books, but I don't want you buying anybody else's, okay? Because they might disagree with me, and then you might think I was wrong, and that would be yeah, no, <laughs> sorry, no. 
But uh, to be fair, you've got me to buy other people's books as well. So yes, well, you mentioned the one one thirty three course. Of course, I have that too. So the uh, the Paul the Paul Wagner Stephen Hand book, which I affectionately called Wagner Hand, I found that book, which is very okay. difficult to get, by the way. Now, yeah, um, yeah, because because you recommend. So it's like, what do I not know? And it's this okay. quest but constantly the, of like, I need to learn. And, and that that book, it's it came out twenty years ago. Yeah. And at that time, and I'm okay, both Stephen and Paul are friends. And yeah, so, and I'm not Paul. speaking out of turn. Yeah, he's a lovely guy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Stephen's, Stephen's a good chap too. But that, that book is really interesting to see what was the state of the art in, in Sword and mm. Buckler research 20 years ago. Yes. And then compare it to what's being done now. And yeah. it's like, like my Sourceman's Companion book, which came out a couple of years later. Right. Mm. Technically, it's entirely obsolete, but it's still an interesting window into how people were approaching this stuff decades ago. Yeah. And I think one of the things that um, a recurring theme in, in all of this is, you know, someone will write an article about something and go, I've just I've just worked something out. And loads of loads of people like yourself that have been doing this for a, a very long time will say, oh, yeah, we we went through that process and we got to a similar place. But the problem is there's been 20 years of conversation, like, like mm. to, to, we can't get back to that point to hear it. So it's looking well, at but, but why was it like that? Yeah. Well, okay. yeah. My, my, my issue is with that sort of thing is when people come up with their fantastic new theory and blah, 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 these days there is a kind of due diligence process that people ought to be doing um, (laughs) before they start spouting their opinions on things. They should check what has been done before because it's actually really annoying when when somebody, you know, you publish something and then 10 years go by and people are not doing what's called a literature, you know, in academia we call it a literature review. They're not doing a lit, before they start spouting their opinions, they're not doing a literature, literature review and figuring out and seeing what's already been done and doesn't need to be Mm. repeated. What's already been done, but they might disagree with. Mm. And they're not actually interacting with the published work that's gone before. I mean, fair enough. If if it's Mm. just somebody posted it on Sword Forum 20 years ago, it's not reasonable (laughs) to trawl through Sword Forum that to find stuff but if it's been out in a book or an article or something like that i think mm. i think there's a there's a reasonable expectation of due diligence being done but the, the advantage to, i totally understand why where, where you're coming from i think bob has the same same attitude but when right. i when i come in and i'm like i've just i've seen this that's different to what why do we not why do we do it that way and why was it done that way so i get to hear that full like, <laughs> yeah. that full conversation of what happened? What was it that made you? Why is that not the right? Why is that not your current in, interpretation of this? Yeah. Like, what did you learn? So I get to relive all of those conversations. So, whilst I appreciate this, probably really frustrating for you, it's super useful for me in my learning. <laughs> <laughs> well, fine. In which case, in which case, I shall, I shall be less of a grumpy old man. <laughs> no, but please, please rant more publicly. I like because I learn. <laughs> um, okay, so. Uh, I described you in the intro as a provost of the Hosper School of Defence. Now, I'm familiar with the term, obviously, but I'm guessing that quite a lot of my listeners will not be. What does it mean generally, and what does it mean specifically in the context of the Hosper School? Yeah, I think so. I think it's a, a 
a very traditional term which still gets used in some universities. Uh, but I think that comes with some admin, admin uh, sort of jobs. In ours, it's um, all of the grades, if you like, in our school is uh, based on, I think it was um, the uh, fight schools that were around in, uh, under Henry VIII's reign. And therefore, we use that as a, as a sign to show progress. The and Guild of the Meisters of Defence, you mean? That's the one, yes. Yeah. Um, so we have exactly the same um, uh, ranks. So you know, okay. we'd, um, you start off as um, uh, a fellow. Yeah. Uh, rightly or wrongly, as gendered as that language might be, <laughs> that's the traditional term. Um, a fellow, and then um, scholar, and then f- um, free scholar, and then provost. And it's basically um, your progression of your understanding of what we're learning application in whatever way, whether that's academic or whether that's, you know, in, in some sort of um, sparring situation and for some weapons that's easier than others. Um, and so our first grade is a uh, scholar, which is we, uh, the rest of the school fence, the, um, the people taking the grading essentially, I guess, uh, with um, longsword and mesa that are our prime weapons. And, um, it's sort of friend, friendly sparring, but the idea is like, are they a danger to either themselves or or others? Can they actually yeah. at least protect themselves? Can they show control under something that's some, like getting closer to a, a more stressful situation? Are they able to start to pick um, techniques and responses under under duress? Um, and so we do forty passes, which is basically until someone you know says, oh, "I've been hit," or you yeah, know, some something like that. Um, with each weapon, but quite often because it's an entire that's, that's, afternoon. That's quite a lot. It is. And it quite often it goes on quite a lot longer than that um, to maybe like 120 passes. I think okay. we've had 180. Someone was very, very keen. Okay. Um, but it's, it's basically a friendly sparring day. No one has to win. Nobody scores. No one has to win. It's not about winning and losing. It's about celebrating what you've learned i guess that's that's okay. the sort of thing and uh, uh very very few people fail um we've had a couple of advisories and it's mostly under things like thrusts that are not quite controlled to our liking to the face okay. um so uh yes we have that and then you're able to pick up uh, and study the other weapons so we have four four other things that, that you can learn um sword and buckler poleaxe dagger and wrestling okay. um, so you pick up two of your electives and then when you've passed some sort of assessment with the next two then you become a free scholar um, and then when you sort of know all of them and uh, every, everything has to improve every, every stage so uh, your um, longsword and messer also has to have improved for you to get to that free scholar place um, and then when we've run out of weapons that um, Bob and the senior students feel like everybody's um, well-versed with, knows enough, knows enough sources, then you uh, are awarded provost. But I think over the last Was there a test for years, Sorry. Was there a test no. for it? No. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Because cause George not, Silver has... Has has you know lists these various tests and things, and your first one, the scholar, feels a lot like the sort of testing that George Silver was talking about. Um, yeah. And what's happening after that seems to be more kind of academic and internal. 
Is that, is that fair? Sort of. Um, I mean, so, yes, I suppose I sort of found out about the fact that I was being awarded this after a class on a Monday and then it went public. And that's why I haven't really responded yet because I still don't know what to do with it. I'm like, I was, this was going to be the next four years of my life. What now, what am I supposed to study? So I need to think of my, <laughs> what am I going to do? So, yeah, I mean, you know, you're never done with this, but I liked that as a framework. So I picked, um, as my electives, I actually picked Sword and Buckler, which is one of the reasons I signed up for your class. So I, yeah. and I'm just absorbing as much of that, basically. And Polax, because, Polex is beautiful. I love it so much. <laughs> oh, yeah. For, for the uh, for the listeners who can't see it, I just grabbed my Polex off the wall and I'm waving it at Joe to make her feel at home. Yeah, love it. It's just the Swiss Army knife. It's all of them. It's all of the weapons, right? So yeah. there's a dagger in there. There's an axe. There's two long swords yeah. attached together at the pommel <laughs> and, and the spear. And a spear, right? Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think it's... Uh, but, yes, so I, I chose those two. And then um, I didn't do dagger because, obviously, I did lots of dagger at Aikido. And although the tanto is a lot short, well, shorter, the techniques are very, very, very similar. Yeah. And one of the things that really struck me about Fiore's dagger work, particularly, well, all of it, but I think... Fiore was the one that I was introduced to first. It was like, this is Aikido, but I've just swapped my hands over. And it's like, oh, yes, because humans have the same pivot points as they've always had. Okay, this makes a lot of sense. So I didn't pick that up as as an elective um, because it, it felt like cheating. Okay. Um, so, um, but then we went to Dijon and there was, there was a class, it was a dagger class, and it was sort of a little bit of, um, like, sort of sparring. So they had to give you attacks and... Um, uh, they had to be a little bit sort of like resisting and I just really enjoyed myself. It was yeah. so much fun. And all of those Aikido instincts, I mean, I have done things like that. And we were on mats. I haven't trained on mats like that for ages. And I had lots, lots of lovely, lovely training partners. Um, and at one point, I think I had somebody in a headlock. So I didn't have the dagger on me. I had this guy and I ch- he had a dagger. I'd got behind him and I was choking him out whilst I got mine and stabbing him. Mm. And at another point, um, the uh, some other instinct came in. Somebody had got me uh, sort of bent over. So I did a forward roll. I don't know what happened, but by the time we'd come up on the other side, I had him. I had his dagger. So I was just sort of like jokingly <laughs> said, I jokingly said, can we, can we consider that my prize play? <laughs> and um, the people that were what, the, from from the school that were there, like, I would back you for that. And then they had a conversation and Bob decided, actually, rather than just doing that, he just wanted to award me the provost. So it came from a cheeky ask to escalating <laughs> way more. Yeah. All right. So, yes, I... I don't really know what to do with it yet, and um, it feels like uh, it feels like a bit a bit of an honour that I think will take a while to sink in, you know. Yeah, and does it does it um, convey? I mean, it, does it involve any like teaching responsibilities or anything like that? Well, I've been helping teach for ages, to be honest. Um, no, but it's not 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 uh, specific to the to the role. Like I have problems um, in my school in Helsinki, and each. And any branch has a provost, and yeah. the provost is the person who's responsible for running the branch under my sort of direction, as it were. So when I'm not there, they're in charge. 
And it is, there's an assumption that they've been training for a while or whatever, but fundamentally in my school is an administrative rank. Right. Yeah, yes, yes, it is. Um, but before this, Bob gave me the title of captain, which was uh, again. A Bob very obviously tall, likes uh, you very much. <laughs> I'm very, very enthusiastic. <laughs> <laughs> captain Joe York, Prost. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and, and it was just because. So, in my day job, I do a lot of like coaching and things like that. Obviously, so. Um, I, I work in startup world where I've had my own startups and then I've uh, now I coach other startups and I run a program um, that finishes today, actually, um, where I've been working with 15 um, founders that had very interesting techie ideas. Um, and I've helped them over the last five months, like stress test that and sort of um, hopefully give them all of the foundations for, for those to be like very good scalable businesses. So because I've, I've worked in startups. It means I've worn, I've worn lots and lots of different hats. Um, I, I, I can code. I was I was a graphic designer before anything else. So obviously I got into interface design um, in like the late the late nineties, and so I've done sales, marketing, business coaching. Um, I'm used to sort of like building a brand thing uh, and things like that. So. As soon as Bob found out these were skills that I had, he started asking for advice and it sort of es- escalated. <laughs> you, you do know that I will be asking you to have a look at what I'm doing and tell me how it Pl- could be improved or please, streamlined. You, please you do. do. I would love that. I would, yeah, absolutely. Um, I would love that. Um, yeah, so, I, uh, so I've sort of been doing those admin roles a bit. Uh, the website is still terrible because I haven't had time, but it's much better than it used to be. But we've done things like um, a beginner's course, which has been really, really successful, sold out pretty much for the last two years. It's, it's, well, since we could in lockdown, they've been absolutely sold out every single time. And it's mean that we've probably doubled the size of the school over the last couple of years. Mm. Um, and um, it, it, all of that is like streamlined now so um i have been doing those and uh so i do things like buy buy the t-shirts design the t-shirts buy the t-shirts so people have been coming to me for those roles and then of course if bob isn't there then there's a there's sort of a a hierarchy of students that would teach the class so uh, andy who's been provost for a couple of years would do that and then uh, maybe ian or or myself would come in and teach something um but we've all we've all helped write bits of the beginners course and things like that. So okay. um, I've 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 been doing that for a while. So I guess it's also um, an acknowledgement of that as well. But, so and I just love swords and teaching people about swords and <laughs> finding know. new people and telling them about swords. <laughs> yeah, yeah there's, there's a there's a little bit of the evangelist in us, I think. Yeah, because there's still part of me that can't believe this is a thing that I'm allowed to do. And right. if and if seven-year-old me knew that adult me found out about this and wasn't throwing everything into this, I'd never have forgiven myself. Like, right. you know, it's like when you look at the child in you and um, quite often if I haven't... So the first event that I went to back after lockdown... I was just so happy, just so happy to be surrounded by sword people, like like learning, just, you know, it's just, um, I love it. Absolutely love it. I can't get enough of it. <laughs> yeah, it is It is nice to be with your tribe, isn't it? Exactly, yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. Okay, now, you, you mentioned some of your entrepreneurial stuff, and obviously I researched my guests before <laughs> interviewing them because it's the polite thing to do and it makes for a better interview. Um, 
And there's there's a bunch of stuff on your LinkedIn bio that I don't understand. So I'm going to ask you some questions about that, which which feel free to relate it to swords if you like, but you can just I mean, I'll it. find a way. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's all swords, really, right? It um, is. Okay. All right. So Ignite Accelerator. Yes. So what you do is you take, you take some lighter fluid, you put it on the accelerator <laughs> pedal, and you light it. Ignite Accelerator. What is an accelerator exactly? So think of it as a like a personal development program, but with a very keen business focus. And so we have two programs that we run every year. Um, one of them is a pre-accelerator. So that's very, very early stage businesses, usually tech with high scaling potential. Um, and it could be someone that has an idea or uh, they might have built something, but they just need a bit of help turning it into an actual business. Um, and so that's the, the first one that we do is a pre-accelerator. And then uh, later on in the year, uh, we do like an accelerator, which is more of a it's uh, more of a focus on raising investment. Um, some of our okay. pre-accelerator teams raise investment from um, from investors, but uh, the the accelerator is more f- focused on that and large uh, raising larger amounts of money. So, um, so if I, I have a tech idea, you're yes. the person I should talk to. Yes, I'll probably tell you it's rubbish, but <laughs> okay, okay. Well, I tell, you, I tell you, why, don't, why don't I just float a problem? Brilliant. And, that you've already and, you've already started well, guy. <laughs> okay. If I float a problem at you, you tell me whether this has potential or not. Okay. Okay. One of the biggest issues that um, people have with creating any kind of IP is handling the money afterwards. Because let's say you and I cooperated on writing a book or producing an online course or something. Yeah. Then for 70 years after our deaths, we still have to f- split that money, right? Yeah. That's hard. Okay. So there are some, in, in the book world, there are, uh, for eBooks, there is Draft of Digital, for example, will allow multiple authors and they will split the money for you, right? So yeah. you put in how much issue is is entitled to and they will split the royalties for you, right? Which makes life easier. But that's just eBooks, so no print. Mm-hmm. And that's just books, so not online courses, not... I mean, there's a million different kinds of IP you could be producing, pictures and whatnot. Okay. So my idea is for a platform where you can collaborate with people and register your IP or your ownership of this IP through this platform and it will act as the, all the money goes into the platform which is then split up amongst the collaborators. And the other thing that this allows you to do is, let's say I've written the next Harry Potter or something even better. (laughs) But because I'm an impoverished author, I can't afford to pay an editor properly or a cover designer properly, right? So what I could do is I could say, look, I will uh, pay you this much up front and this percentage of the royalties from this thing in perpetuity. Um, and so people like, I don't know, I'm, I'm, think, I'm thinking in terms of books, but obviously it's wider, people like graphic designers, layout designers, editors, all, all these creative people who are involved, who are usually only paid upfront a fixed fee, and that's that. 
actually get a piece of the action long term. So if the book does do a Harry Potter, they get rich. Imagine how pissed off you'd be to know you got paid maybe a grand and a half, two grand to do the first Harry Potter book and that's it, right? Yeah. And you get none of the action afterwards, right? Yeah. So what this platform would do would be allow creatives to plausibly offer a piece of the action to people who are normally involved in the process but only get an upfront fee normally, like a session fee for a musician, right? Yeah. Okay. And of course, the money's in the long tail, right? Yeah. And, and it persists 70 years after the, after the death of the copyright owners. Yeah, right? of course. So, so this platform, it would have to have the ability to handle the money, the ability to split the money for a specific project amongst people who have a certain stake in it. So let's say for our project, I own 30%, you own 30%, and the other 40% is split between, say, five other people who were involved, maybe a graphic designer, maybe an editor, maybe a photographer, maybe whoever, right? And the money will get put into their accounts on that platform automatically when, for instance, we make a sale on Teachable, we make a sale on whatever platform we're selling on. Yeah, fantastic idea. You see? You see, I had this idea five years ago, but the problem is I'm not a tech startup person. I'm not a... Let's build it. Let's go. (laughs) We could build it. We could. Um, Yeah, so most very early stage tech is all about, it's usually about founder problem fit, right? And, And the reason for that is you need to be really passionate about what you're building and really care about it. And the more inside knowledge you have, if there's any secret source to any of this, it's no more about your customers than anybody else. Right. Like, and that's the same for you when you're writing books and content. It's the same thing, right? It's exactly the same thing. And what, what traditionally happens is people get so in love with their own ideas that they miss all of the feedback of people going, mm, that's not quite what I write. So they build it and then they go, how many do you want? And everyone goes, mm, no. <laughs> so right. there's, there's, and it's basically, it's applying the scientific method to business. And just tech startups have got really good at it because it's um, there's so many more unknowns. So the analogy that I always give is uh, like hairdressers, big fan of hairdressers. My mum's a hairdresser, so I feel like I understand it as like a business. But there's certain things we don't need to prove. We know a lot of people have hair. They want it cut, usually with scissors. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, they want it sort of n- nearby and we understand that there's different costs involved that's a model that's been proven with a, a tech startup people might have hair they might want it cut do they want it blow torched off do they like can I hit it with an right. axe like and so the only question there with the hairdressers is do you want me to cut your hair and I can tell you from lockdown the answer is no you do not nobody <laughs> wants that oh can I just say can I just say right I have two teenage daughters both of them get me to cut their hair. Nice. Yes. Skills. Yeah. Well, honestly, what style honestly, is it? They, no, <laughs> they have, the they have long straight. They have long straight hair, and every now and then they want it trimmed off straight at the back. That's it. So it's, it's that honestly is a, not. 
skill. That is a skill. I'm terrible at it. My mum would be I, very embarrassed. In fact, she has been. She's, <laughs> she's seen my partner's hair when I had to cut it over lockdown. And she's like, what have you done? <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, so there's a lot of unknowns, basically. So, like, by my job, really, for the pre-accelerator has been. So I've had 15 teams over the last five months. And today, weirdly, is the last day. Um, yeah. So we did a big showcase on Wednesday and they all had to pitch, had a three minute pitch to a live audience. Um, my job is to basically try and give them the foundations to be able to work out whether what they're doing, like, is it the core business idea? Is it speaking to customers? Is it the marketing? What is it? How do they test? How do they do very small tests to test every hypothesis all the way through through that uh, business? And I can tell you, it's much easier to do it from the outside looking in than it is from the inside of your own startup. So that's the advantage that I have. (laughs) And also I've done it three times now. So I've made a lot of my own mistakes and I know, so I I know the implications of, of making a decision early on that you might not see where it goes in like year three or four or whatever. And and the thing is the, the founding DNA of a company determines so much about what happens next. Like, I mean, think, the reason Facebook is a cesspool is because it originally began as a way for dude bros at Harvard to rate the hotness of their female classmates. Yeah. I mean, how is that not going to turn into something shitty? It has yeah. to. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's so certain things over that um, five months. So it, it could be like workshops, but we also have you know other people like me that will have a weekly meeting with the teams. And we just coach them, like, what, what problems have you got? What problem, What um, solutions do you need? Who do you need to speak to? Do I know someone I can introduce you to that's done that before that you can speak to? So it's all that kind mm-hmm. of um, support around people doing hard things. And then the reason it's a cohort is because they're all going through it together. So now they've got a peer group of people that understand what it's like to try and do impossible things where normal people, normal, sensible people that have safer jobs think they're mad because we all sort of are right entrepreneurs are all sort of a bit mad um yes and it becomes so much of your own identity if you're not careful that like you know the success or failure of this company is this thing that you're building feels like you and then uh, most startups will fail because they're incredibly hard it's really risky um but your second one or third one will probably do much much better um and uh and so like it's about building up the person and then helping them separate their ego from that and then uh we have done you know like how to how to they're all great people but we've also done some like how do you hire a diverse workforce and and there's some maybe some unconscious like bias that you don't know yourself because you're right culture is such an early part of the business and particularly if, let's say, you're two co-founders, your first hire, that is a third of the business that is now a yeah. different person. Yeah. And so, very early on, it's it's it can it can go, it can go very wrong very quickly. I think. So yeah. yeah so I, I mean, I it's brilliant because I get all sorts of things thrown at me from. So just those fifteen teams that I've been working with, we've got some uh, metaverse NFT. Uh, nonsense yeah. um, and they know oh, that I call it nonsense it's brilliant <laughs> nonsense but uh, yeah um, to health tech to um, you know some marketing tech in there we've got some physical products there's a insole that goes into shoes that will help people um, detect whether or not so uh, 
people with uh, diabetes are more prone to ulcers if they Ooh, get ulcers. Yes, they end up with amputations. Yeah, and amputations often lead to death. Yeah, well, that, they're not they're not happy. No, so, no, so, but so it's like, an insult. Just, for diabetics to early detect when their circulation is bad so they can get it before they have to have that. Oh, that is genius. It's great, isn't it? It's really good. That um, is so, genius. And then if it works. Yes, exactly. So as you can, I'm sure you can well, all the use case, Yeah, the use case is really straightforward and finding the people who need it is a very clearly defined segment yeah. of the human population. If yeah. you don't have diabetes, this is not useful to you. If you have certain kinds of diabetes, it's not useful to you. But if you have the sort of diabetes which puts your feet at risk of being chopped off, this is something that you want and it's a small expense to yeah. stave off a massive downside. Yeah. So as exactly. a business, yeah. it's, an, it's an obvious slam dunk. If yeah, yeah. Well, if it were, and that's so that's always the thing, right? So it's about finding what's the thing that you want to build. Who cares about that? And do they yeah. really care about it? So we talk about this, oh, as you can imagine, there's a whole load of stupid phrases and jargon in startup world. But um, one of them is it is it a uh, is it a painkiller or a vitamin? Like, so are you ah. actually solving somebody's pain, or is it just you know it's a nice to have thing? Because yeah. once you actually and it's it's finding that that's product market fit in the truest term comes much later but if you can find a problem that people really want to solve you can find different solutions for that and that's a business but also like one person's painkiller is another person's vitamin sores are a great example yes my my the core of the people who you know pay my rent not that i rent anymore but you get the (laughs) idea right um the the core of my client base, to talk in business terms, are the people for whom swords are more than a painkiller and they're more than a vitamin. They are oxygen. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I'm, I'm, in, I'm helping them get access to this thing that they actually need. Yeah. Right? But for most people in the sword world, right, for some it may be a painkiller, but for most of it it's a vitamin. It's a nice to have and they're cool and they're fun and whatever, but they come and they go. Yeah. But for those people for whom this is this is the thing. Yeah. Those and are the only people who I actually feel I have to look after properly. Perfect. That's exactly the right thing. And that's what I would teach the teams. And there's loads of different models to do that where you, you work out who there's a really good questionnaire that we used at my last company, Ricochet, and it's an excellent question. And it's how disappointed would you be if this thing that you're paying for would go away? Right. And all of the people go that I no like some people are like meh okay I would I would I would learn to love again <laughs> that's fine yes. but the people that are just like no this would be really bad they're the only people you should focus on first right yeah and yeah. and even yeah, focus on long term actually I recently read a book um, called Don't Trust Your Gut by Seth something or other right um, I'll put a note note in the show notes yeah and see. It has. He's a he's a fascinating sort of economist, tech person, data scientist sort of person. His first book was called Everybody Lies, in yes. which he talked about he talked about basically the difference, basically using Google searches as a window into people's honest, true desires and interests. Yeah. Because you don't lie to a search engine, but you do lie to psychologists, and you do lie to questionnaires, and you do lie to make yourself look good in all sorts of other situations. <laughs> but, yes. You know, you don't lie to Google because you're looking for the thing you actually want. Yeah. Um, but his second book, Don't Trust Your Gut, has all sorts of what he calls 
um, counter counterintuitive facts. Like, for instance, there's this story that tech founders, successful tech founders, are usually um, young, like 19, 20, 21, like, like, like Bill Gates and, and Mark Zuckerberg, and they made these billion-dollar companies, and they started when they were children, right? But the average age of the successful tech startup founder is mid-40s. Yeah. Right? Which, which, when you think about it, is obviously true. Yeah. Right? But actually, there's this story that, no, they have to be young or whatever. And there's also the story of, like, the maverick outsider who doesn't really know the industry, and so they can see it clean, yeah. and they come up with this genius thing, and it's, like, amazing. And, yeah, every now and then, somebody does that, and it works really well. Yeah. But, uh, generally speaking, having, say, 20 years of working in that field makes you much more likely to be a successful founder of a company. Yeah. Because you understand the field uh, actually, that's an advantage. Totally. So absolutely, yeah, yeah. But it's not—it's not a sexy story, though. It's not, and, <laughs> but there's all sorts of myths, isn't there? Like, yeah, like you get this. We're so fixated with this hero's journey as right. like this one person that goes and does something. Actually, what that one person do, did was really good at finding other people that were really good at the right. things that they weren't good at. Right? Are, are, you, are you familiar? <laughs> are you familiar with the literary trope of the heroine's journey? No. Okay. Hero's journey is, as you say, and it's all very well documented and blah, blah, blah. Less well understood, less less talked about is the heroine's journey. It's got nothing to do with the sex or gender of the main protagonist. It has yeah. everything to do with their strategy. Interesting. Right? Um, and it is, well, Harry Potter, for example, heroine's journey, because it's a team of kids who get together and defeat Voldemort. Yes, Harry's like the the point man, but he'd be dead without Hermione, dead yeah. without Ron. It's actually it's a team of the three plus their other helpers, and that's and they all develop over time. And they and like like the Fellowship of the Ring, yeah. right? There is only one ring, and Frodo's carrying it. But it's not a hero's journey; it's a heroine's journey because he is entirely dependent on his team to get him to where he needs to go. Yeah, yeah. And at the end, when he is alone. He fails. And yeah. then Gollum comes and bites the ring off and, and, you know, the world is saved. But he actually, when he when he's finally on his own doing the heroic thing alone, he fails. Mm. Yeah. Right? So it's actually classic heroine's journey stuff. I'm gonna, I will totally check that out. Yeah. There's, there's, there's books <clears throat> on it. Yeah. No, I haven't, I haven't come across that. I mean... I usually talk about the hero's journey when I'm talking to the teams about storytelling, right? So if you're building a business, you're creating a movement. And so that's, yeah. that starts with customers, uh, then it goes into team, and then, you know, investors, and um, sometimes investors before team. But you know what I mean? Like, yeah. like you, you have to build a movement. And what people mistake with using the hero's story as a framework is they think they're the hero. They're not the hero. The audience is the hero. Like, you have to take them on that particular journey yeah. um so yeah it's absolutely fascinating i mean whilst we're giving book tips if anybody has got a startup idea and wants to validate something um there's a really good book called the mom test like m-o-m it's um american yeah. um american for mum. yeah mom, yeah it should be mum yeah. mum or like mam in the northeast i guess but um yeah the mum test it's it's basically how to do user interviews but like 
really well. So the, the premise behind the book is um, the author, um, whose name escapes me right now, um, he, uh, he had this idea to build an app uh, and he thought his mum was like a perfect archetypal customer for that. Um, yeah. And it was all about um, uh, recipes, I think. And he went and asked her, and said, I'm thinking about building this, what do you think? And she went, oh, that's great. That's lovely. Of course I'd buy that. And then he built it. Nobody did. Nobody used it because... Um, because your mum will buy whatever you make. Exactly, right? So how do you yeah. ask questions to get to the truth um, so that even your mum won't lie to you to make you feel good about yourself? <laughs> That's the <laughs> idea. So, so the mum test is really, really good. Um, and uh, it's just a really good way of get, getting to the truth of what is the real problem here. Um, and the other one is like looking through the framework. It's called Jobs to be Done. And there's uh, loads of books on it. But it's basically what is the job, that, the thing that you're doing, like is, act is actually trying to solve? What's the job that people would pay somebody for? So in your case with right. yours, you would maybe pay a broker for that, right? You'd pay or an accountant party. or something. Or an yeah. accountant. Yeah, yeah. And, or and somebody has to take the money yeah. and, and <laughs> yeah. hand it out like this. Yeah, yeah. exactly. So so it's um, it's like looking it through those those particular lenses and focusing on the problem, not falling in love with the solution. So the other the other phrase that I want to use here is like you're uh, quite often products are um, solutions looking for problems, and right. that's you end up building something that people quite fancy or like it's not built for anybody it doesn't solve anybody's problem it sort of looks at a collection of people's problems and you really need to focus on that you can you can widen your audience every single stage but you you know so in your case with your you know books and courses it's people that actually and it's somebody that wants to study sword and buckler so you start there and then, you know, you, you widen out the weapons or you widen out a specific thing. You don't just go, I'm going to teach you HEMA. <laughs> no, it needs to no, be no. specific. You're, you're solving a specific problem. And for a, a lot of courses, it's like it's a beginner's course because you get them in and then you teach them and you know what they know and then you can build, you can upsell like a different, this is more advanced, more advanced. Yeah. You don't just go, I'm going to teach oh, any human, any human, any weapon. Like, and that's the problem that people make with the fact that they go too wide, too quick. So, yeah. um, again, very easy to spot from the outside. Mm, easier to spot from the outside. Yeah. Really yeah. difficult when you're doing it yourself. Yeah, and, and the, the royalty split thing, it was because I was talking to a friend of mine who's written some books and needs to pay for graphic design and editing and whatnot and doesn't have the money to pay for it up front. Yeah, yeah. Right. And you can't reasonably ask an editor who you don't know to edit your book in the hopes of future royalties. Yeah. Right. Um, that's just mad. No editor, no sensible editor would, would take that unless, unless they were your mum. Your yeah. mum would do that. <laughs> right. <laughs> unless um, she's lying to but, you. <laughs> well, yeah. But having, having some way in, having some way to, uh, sort of, hedge it so you pay less up front because you're giving a like like Alec Guinness in Star Wars yeah. right when he was hired for Star Wars they couldn't afford to pay him his usual rate because oh, they had right. no money then it was the first Star Wars and so he got a piece of the action wow that and was that, a good deal that, that little piece of the action if I remember the story right made him more money than all of his other work put together yeah I'm not surprised yeah right? I mean it makes sense right <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I I have a basic principle that I won't I won't do significant amounts of work for any company that I don't own a chunk of. Mm. Right? Because why would I? Yeah. 
right? Because I, if I'm putting work into something, I want, I want that work to be an investment in future growth rather yeah. than just something that's put out into the void. Yeah, yeah, makes total sense. And I think there's this, this idea as well um, about pay, paying it forward. Like there's plenty yeah. of people that have helped me up front on my journey. Um, and, and it's about if I can help somebody, that's great. But when the time, you can't help everybody for free. In order for me to be yeah. available to help other people, I have to get paid in some way to do that. And um, when you take a gamble, it's because you believe in someone. I mean, this is exactly why very early stage angel investors, so high net worth individuals investing their own money, why they tend to be the first people in taking the most risk, but they get a larger percentage of the whole thing because they've yeah. taken that risk. It's because they believe in something. Um, yeah, it's, um, I, really, I really believe in paying it forward. But uh, yeah, and doing small tests. So speaking of tests and things like that, one of the things that I did um, last year was I, I did a little experiment called, it's a cutting square, you know, Myers Square. I made yeah. an interactive um, version of it. Um, oh, cool. And it's up at um, cuttingsquare.com. Um, cuttingsquare.com. Yeah, okay, I'll put, I'll put a link in the show notes. I'll obviously. put it in the chat. Um, and it was just, uh, I was like, I want to build this. I think it'd be interesting for people in the... Um, in the school um i wanted i wanted something to get my teeth into um again after you know we sold ricochet my last startup and um i thought well maybe if people ah, joe that's brilliant thanks um so there is a way to contact me on that and then um uh, I will at some point when i get some time i will try and make those improvements but there's left-handed right-handed you can set the um tempo it's not perfect it's very hacked together as like a minimum viable test but you know uh, okay if this is your idea of hacking something together <laughs> I, I, think, <laughs> I think you'll do all right okay so basically basically what it's doing is it's just it's it's coloring one square I think you're supposed to cut into that square cut into this square cut into whichever whichever square it gives you next that's where you throw your blow yeah yeah so um I will at some point make it so it can be used offline on a phone, which is the biggest request that I get. But um, yeah, anyway, it's up there. That's it's up genius. there for people to try. Thank you. I just, I was amazed that it didn't exist already. I was like, why has nobody yeah. done this? So yeah. Anyway, okay. that is, please, ev everybody enjoy feedback. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, will, I, will, I will try and I'll make a note to put that into a newsletter as well. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, because because thing is the, the solo training thing. Mm. It's something of an obsession of mine. You know, I've got my solo training course. My last sort of non-workbooky book was basically the principles of solo training, mm. uh, modestly entitled "The Windsor Method" because that's yes. what my friends told me to call it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> right. It's a great title. Because if you can't if you can't train alone, then you are entirely dependent on finding suitable nutcases to train with and that's really difficult sometimes it's highly inconvenient and, and nobody wants to train as much as i do <laughs> right and and also like there's a whole bunch of training that is better done on your own mm. right you can't hit things full force if that other thing is a person mm. yeah yeah right certainly not with a sword anyway yeah um, definitely not with and, a pole axe and, no, definitely not. Definitely not. And, you know, do you really need somebody else there when you're doing your strength training and your push-ups and whatnot? I mean, really? No. It's not really a spectator um, sport, is it? Oh, I suppose it is. CrossFit. 
but <laughs> well, also, uh, al- although actually, actually, I do have you know my morning train alongs, um, yes. which is not a spectator sport. It's just me doing my training basically, um, but really, it's just there so that it's for it's kind of presented as a class so that students will show up so that I actually have to show up and do it. Yeah, yeah, totally. Right. Peer pressure works really well if you can use it well, for good well, rather than evil. Right. It's really good. Yeah, I, it's not really. Peer pressure. It's more, um, more sort of like accountability, my professional pride, oh, right. professional pride. Yeah. It's like you know, I said I'll I'll run this class at this time in this place. I, I then have to do that, <laughs> right? That's why, incidentally, back in the old days when I was going to these events, WMW uh, and Ismac and whatnot, they would always have me in the first thing Sunday morning slot, right? Yeah, because they knew that. If I was teaching the next morning, I wouldn't get too drunk the night before. I would get to bed early and I would actually be fit to teach a class the next morning. Nice. Right. And there weren't that many other instructors who, well, pretty much none of them were professionals. So understandable um, who they could rely on for that. So I got stuck with it. And after about 10 years of this, I said to the organizers, I have done my time <laughs> and I will not teach on Sunday at all. <laughs> Take it or leave it. And they were like, well, fair enough, guy. Actually, yeah, fair enough. And so I was done teaching by Saturday afternoon and I could get drunk with my friends Saturday night and, and be a bit groggy the next morning and it was fine. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, it's that, that sort of, you know, you have professional standards, right? Yeah, exactly. So exactly. Yeah. Um, um, abs- okay. Absolutely. The other... Now, I did, so, I I did want to ask you, mm. what is your favourite episode of the show? Right. I did think about this. This show. I did think about this, and I think this question is a lot like asking, which is the best dog? Like, they're all good dogs, right? They're all good dogs. Um, okay. So I'm going to answer a different question, and I'm going to answer, because there's too many to choose from. What I really like is that you don't know what you don't know, and the shows are full of those little nuggets of things. It's like, oh, that's really interesting. If I can apply it to fencing, then it gets a million more points than anything else. But just sometimes it's just a way that somebody explains something that just makes it click. So the question that I'm going to answer, if that's okay, is the most listened to um, episode is actually the one with you and Cornelius just completely geeking out about tempo. Oh, right. Okay. And I was listening to it. So you listened to it more than once? Yes. I was listening to it in the car. And yeah. because you're also discussing um, sources that I don't know anything about with rep- weapons that I don't do. Honestly, you would cry if you saw me with a rapier. It's it's like fencing. Loses. I would cry with joy. You, I would cry with joy. I would. You wouldn't. I. So the um, the uh, the by the sword event that Fran yeah. puts on um, yeah. uh, a couple of months ago, they have like a mixed steel and they sort of like roll a dice mm-hmm. and um, we do, I think there was long sword, sabre, which I basically treat like a messer um, and yeah. um, uh, uh, um, rapier. And I'm terrible with a rapier, really, really bad. So I basically did uh, Fiore's sword in one hand. <laughs> okay. That's not quite. Although, although <laughs> Camaferro says at the end at the end of his book, um, Il Gran Simulacro, he he gives you a secure way to defend yourself against all sorts of blows, and he says to wait in a low quarter, and when they attack, beat it up with a with prima, and then thrust, that, which is very similar yeah, yeah, yeah. to what Cap, Cap, uh, to what Fiore is doing the sword in one hand, only the sword is pointing forward rather than back at the beginning. Yeah. So I think you probably were actually you were. 
Channeling Capafero there. I, I will take that from you, Guy. I will take that. <laughs> uh, yeah, so... Okay, okay. Um, so so you the Cornelius episode is your most listened to? Yeah, so I was listening to it in the car, which okay. I... I usually do. Um, and uh, I had to pause it because I'm like, I need to write notes on this. <laughs> like, it literally <laughs> leads to... So I use a system for all of my notes called Rome Research. It's basically like a personal knowledge system. There are other things out okay. there as well, but this is, this is the one I use. And it's basically something you can just pour thoughts into like written thoughts and it'll link it together and and the difference is you don't have to have a series of documents that you file away it, it, it you can put tags around it so i used to have my own wiki for things um because i have to keep track of yes i use this for sword stuff but just for you know all of these um different things going on with business like marketing raising money i've got all of these different resources for the teams and that that's how i manage um, manage it but i manage everything in there so i was like i need to write this down uh, and I'm missing it. Rome research. Rome. So R O. Uh, I'll I'll send it to you in the email. I'll send you the yeah, link. Yeah, do. Um, okay. But yeah, it's um, and it's really good for writing. It's really good for writing papers as well, apparently. Um, okay. But yeah, so I was like, I need to stop. I I can't. I'm not concentrating on the driving here, <laughs> and I felt like I was missing <laughs> things. So uh, yeah, I had to stop it and go on to like something else, something more frivolous. And then um, come back to it. So I think I've probably listened to that one about three times. Okay. But there are other bits. That's pretty good. But I write lots and lots of notes on. So I've, I, all all of this amazing wealth of knowledge that everybody brings in from loads of people that I like already know and respect. And then I meet a whole load of other ones on this. So um, they're, they're all excellent episodes and I enjoy them all. That's my get out that's answer. Oh, <laughs> that's, a, that's actually a really good answer. Cause, <laughs> because the thing is, like, I, okay, take, taking risks is the wrong way to put it, but I don't have a consistent yardstick by which I decide whether somebody is should come on the show or not. Mm. It's more an instinctive, huh, that person is, is, seems like they would have something a bit different to offer or, you know, I mean, people like that, getting Christian Tober on the show, that's mm. an obvious, obvious person to have on because, you know, he's been at the forefront of the historical martial arts movement for the last 25 years, yeah. right? So, obvious candidate. Um, Jessica Finley, another fairly obvious candidate. Um, but finding people who may have only been training for six months or a year, mm. but they're doing something interesting with it, like um, like documenting it on YouTube, for instance. Mm. Um, or, you know, just... It's 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 difficult it's difficult for me to know whether somebody's going to be a good guest or not, and I have absolutely no way of predicting how it's going to be received mm. because some of my some of my should we say quirkier nichier um, less obviously mainstream historical martial arts popular people have ha- have generated the most oh my god that was amazing emails <laughs> from listeners right. And, and some of the obvious heavier hitters have had less obvious effects mm. in terms of, you know, feedback that I receive on the show. Mm. Interesting. Right? Cornelius was a popular one. Yeah. And that, again, but that wasn't a standard episode. I didn't actually interview him. He emailed me with a question about tempo. Yeah. And I said, look, we should probably discuss this um, over Zoom or something because it would be more efficient. Um, oh, why don't I record it? Yeah. 
No, it was so, so good. And this is... So I didn't even introduce him properly. <laughs> <laughs> like, I need to get him back on and actually do a proper interview. Yeah. No, he's great. I trained with him. Uh, so in, in the before times, the event at the Royal Armouries, I was there for that. And I trained, trained in his class. And I really enjoyed it. It was a very much, it was very much a back to basics, like his, his basics, but just, and I think this is where, you know, when you've studied martial arts for a really long time, you start to really appreciate the nuance. So I will often stop somebody, even when I'm training with it, or like, oh, I'll pull over the instructor and go, you did that different. What can you do that on me so I can feel what the difference is? And I'll try and get them to describe it. And it might work for me. It might not. But the fact that it's different and new, I'm like, why are you doing it mm. like that? Where, like, there's a reason. Like, how do you find it works here? But like, so I try and unpick it. So yeah, I really, I really like, and that's why I buy as much as I can and try and absorb it because you don't know what you don't know. So yeah, yeah it's it's really good. I enjoy it. And that actually goes goes to the diversity thing you were talking about with choosing the the people to work in a startup. Yeah, right. Because if if all of you are, I don't know have computer science degrees from from Princeton, yeah. right? Then there may be diversity of other things, but there isn't going to be a diversity of education. Yeah. And so you're going to be missing certain things that you don't know you're missing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And quite often, you know, I think we're, we're slowly becoming more aware about the importance of like diversity in all sorts, sorts of different ways. One of the ones that seems to get missed is like we t- touched on it, age because it feels right. like a very much a young person thing and a young person like no you need somebody to do a job what is that job that do you want the best person to do that who's the best person to do that somebody that's been doing it their entire life and then you start to bring in different perspectives about how you don't you don't know that you're accidentally alienating people like with your products so like you just it's that wealth and i think we're better as humans we're better when we work together right and that's that right. needs to include as many people as possible and diverse opinions um as long as they're not offensive but (laughs) and i am aware offensive isn't it is the eye of the beholder but as long as you're trying to be a good human trying to be good to other humans like like i feel that sort of diversity like that's that's how we've done amazing things as a as a mammal like why would we then want to pigeonhole that yeah i mean um, team building is the original force multiplier Mm, yeah Two people could, together can do much more than two people separately. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I had people installing solar, pa- solar power into my house two days ago, mm. right? And the electrician who was doing it, um, there's tricky electrician stuff I know nothing about. And he called one of his colleagues who came and helped for a couple of hours. And it basically shaved about four hours off the total time, even if you include like the man hours, the extra man hours of having that extra person there for two hours, right? It shaved hours off the job Mm. because doing it together was so much faster than doing it on his own. Yeah. Right? And it's true for all sorts of things. Like the first step in any campaign is recruit allies. Yeah, totally. And sometimes it can be the smallest amount of commitment of just go and find somebody that's done that before and just go and talk to them. Find three right because you don't want to come like there's, there's opinion and there's fact but like what happened when you did this what what did you learn and just get 
get that insight and that gives you a massive head start as well but being able to tap into those different networks and get as much information as possible like Mm. yeah and that works as well in the fencing school right so one of the really nice things that we've been able to do as we grow is to um you know when we get into um free fencing and things like that we all feed back to each other because as we all get better and i've started to encourage people to film themselves and look back so that they can start to Mm. develop this part of the brain and what just happened um and they're sort of like yeah but then then you know they might beat me i'm like yeah then you'll have to find a new way to beat them and then we all get better (laughs) exactly exactly and you know like fencing memory is a skill that can be trained yeah Right, really important um, one. I, really important one. <laughs> yeah, because you don't know what just happened, you can't fix it for next time. Yeah. Okay. Now I have a couple of questions, as you know, yes. as an, as a listener of the show. Um, what is the best idea you haven't acted on? Um, this was really difficult for me because I do really you small. Te- yeah, you really do act on stuff. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> so the thing that I haven't acted on yet is I've been Mm -hmm. thinking about putting out my content of content of the stuff that we've been thinking about in the school. And the reason that I haven't done it is because I, I, I'm trying to work out the way to frame that. So people realize this is a constant work in progress. This, I'm not saying I've done this and this is done. So there's that imposter syndrome of like, I'm not saying this is the way I'm saying this is that here's some stuff that's interesting. What do you think? Um, and the other reason is uh, I don't want to have to deal with unhelpful um, opinions from the internet. <laughs> like, <laughs> constructive feedback's great, and I don't care how direct that is, but just people just being awful humans because they're sat at the other, the other end of the keyboard. So I need to find a balance for that. So when I find a balance, I will start to do stuff. Um, yeah, I, I, have, I have a pretty clear sort of set of principles for that Mm. firstly i don't do social media at all Mm. i pay somebody to do it for (laughs) me so when you see something of mine posted on social media it's not me doing it myself it's somebody else who i am paying to do it because they don't have skin in the game and sometimes people say nasty things about some of the things i do and that's just part of it and 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 they're they're not offensive to the to the person i'm paying because it's not aimed at yeah yeah right um because, you know, one nasty comment can completely derail your day. Oh, yeah. When it comes to things like book reviews, um, if if my target readers are, are telling me this is exactly what they wanted and giving me five stars or whatever, mm. then I know the book is good. And if so, then if I get a one star or two star review, I know I have sold a book to the wrong person, mm. Right. It's a marketing problem. Yeah. Maybe I should have been clearer in the blurb. Like somebody, somebody bought one of my workbooks, which clearly states it has, you know, space for writing notes and whatnot. Yeah. And he gave it a one-star review because it's got all this blank space <laughs> in it. It's like, it's a fucking workbook. You fucking bellend was my emotional response. <laughs> but really, really, really what that, what, what that was is the blurb needed to be clearer. This is a workbook. It is not dense text. Sorry, that's right. my dog being really excited. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And and did you? Yeah, I think your doorbell just went. It did. Yeah. And sorry. Like, it's very exciting. New people. New people. Rough. Rough. Yeah, like what? Well, yes, very exciting. And I I bought the workbook and because 
again, you don't know what you don't know, but bearing in mind one of my sort of things here is like, how do we get more people involved in this? Like, this is a yeah. really good... I, I, people think about, like... I think they, they, they make the, pro the mistake of calling them basics. They're not basics, they're fundamental. The fundamentals. Right. You cannot understand too much the fundamentals. So I will, right. yeah, and I will read everything. And the way that, you, that people explain it, I'm like, do you know what? That's really useful. But sometimes, just like it was in the Cornelius episode, just the way that mm -hmm. somebody else explains their understanding of a principle just go oh it sounds really obvious now you said it like that now i feel like an idiot but like it just really helps you right and then sometimes if you're trying to explain yeah. that to somebody else in a class or something like that you've got that to rely on this mental models okay as a tech person hmm. what do you think of the workbook format with the qr codes linking to videos and stuff does that work i was very excitedly told Bob that it, it had arrived and that there were so many good ideas that we needed to be heavily inspired by. Um, <laughs> okay. I so for years we've been trying to yeah, we've been, the QR codes have like appeared everywhere and I think that lockdown was the time of QR codes. Yeah. And apart some of the issue with technology is timing. Yeah. And like there's nothing really new under the sun. There's just, you know, we just tweak it a bit, right? And we just find a different ways to solve that problem. I thought that was brilliant. I thought it was really, really good. Really good. So, so it works. I okay. I really yeah. Um I have okay. have tried it. I think it's great. Um I'm very dyslexic. And so okay. any anything where I don't have to um type type in a URL is great. Having said that, my phone is actually quite good at reading text now and translating. Okay. That's incredible. <laughs> That's a thing. Yes. Um, so yeah, I th I thought I really liked it. it okay, good because I, I for some reason the workbook format that I created started with the rapier ones mm. hasn't really taken off. I'm not seeing anybody else doing it, and pretty much nobody is buying it. It's like my my regular books outsell the workbooks ten to one. Interesting, but it the other thing the other thing that I really liked is you had the right and left-handed version. I thought that was great. Well, it's, if you write with a pen, you need yeah. to be able to do that, I yeah. think. And, yeah. and it's a bit shitty if you're a left-hander having to kind of write over on the other on the wrong page. It's just, yeah. No, I thought yeah. it was a great idea. Um, but yeah, I mean, the only the only way you can do it is test these things, right? That's yeah. why. <laughs> but okay, but here's the thing, right? And this is where I am not very businesslike. Okay, from an economic standpoint, I should bin the left-handed versions because they they do not make back the the extra costs in layout are not made back in profits from sales right it costs me quite a lot of money to get basically it's, it's getting the book laid out twice yeah. right and the so the extra layout costs which is considerable um does not come back in sales but i don't care yeah. Because it's the right thing to do. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I know, I know that embedding video into workbook is a better way of communicating movement than having static pictures. Yeah. And everyone has a smartphone pretty much. And if you can point it at the page and see the video, you'll get, you'll get the movement much better than if I type it all out extra times. Yeah. Right. So I know that it's right. I know that it's better than what came before. Yeah. And I'm just going to have to quietly and patiently wait for the historical martial arts world to wake up and realise I'm a fucking genius and do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but this is the thing. So 
But it's the same, I guess it's the same reason you do the podcast, right? You don't yeah. do the podcast to make money. It doesn't make any money. It costs doing, me money. <laughs> but doing the podcast will help you make money, if you know what I mean. So, uh, yeah, indirectly it might. It, it totally will. Absolutely. Because it hasn't yet. No, you just can't attribute it yet. No, 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 no. Okay. Podcast has been running for almost exactly two years now. Okay. My income from books and courses is went up significantly in 2020 before the podcast came out, before I even had the idea for the podcast. Right. And it has stayed pretty much constant since then. Mm. So the time and work I'm putting into the podcast is not coming back in terms of book sales and whatever. But I don't do it for that. I mm. do it because basically um, I had this, I read the book, um, Invisible Women, Caroline, mm. Caroline Criado Perez. And I was like, fuck, I, I wasn't aware. And so what can I do to, you know, improve diversity in historical martial arts? Well, I have a platform. Let's get lots of people who aren't me onto it uh, how do I do that podcast seems like a good idea let's give it a go yeah right but, that that was the plan but if you think about it if you think about it in cold business terms yeah. no it's not it's not but what are you doing you're widening out people that know about HEMA yeah like so all of these are the people that you're getting in all of their friends and family now probably understand that what they're doing <laughs> all of their audience also, now find out HEMA's a thing not all of my guests are sword people Exactly. So, the, what was the really good one with the two stage combatant? Oh yeah, um, that was a really good one. Yeah, I'm I'm blanking on the name. Rachel and yes, um, I'll put it in the show. It's and again, but they're they're stage combat people, and they they have a, a just a different take on the whole how do you train people with swords? Exactly. Thing. Yeah. Um, actually some of my favourites have been with people who have nothing to do with swords at all like Katie mm. Bowman mm. right the biomechanist mm. right she doesn't swing swords particularly um, I mean she plays swords with her son sometimes but that's about it yeah right? but I mean just as the same way that I found out about you know HEMA through because there was the Hotspur School of Defence because I right. watched a documentary on history. Oh, there you go. Yeah, okay. This is what sure. I... So, and so just winding it out. So as far as I'm concerned, everybody that finds out that HEMA is a thing, because it's a conversation starter, right? Did you know right. there's some people with swords? I met this woman the other day with a sword, and she just talked to me about swords. And then, then it might not be this generation. It might be the next generation of kids that know they can play with swords. As grown-ups. As grown-ups. When they have disposable income and no one can tell them they can't buy all the swords they need. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Or even all the swords they want. A reason not the need, you know. I I mean, I'm not sure they're different, are they? (laughs) Uh, No, no, no. There there are swords that I want and swords that I need. Right? I I do not need a beautiful, big, sharp, glorious, messery type thing that I got given by... Um, my students in Seattle recently, a couple of years ago, actually. Um, it was just a gift. And it, I, I, if I'd needed it, I would have bought it as a necessary. I mean, I have sharp swords that will do the thing. But actually, if there was one sword that I was going to save in a fight, it would probably be that one. Interesting. Right? Yeah. Although it's, I don't teach that weapon. And the swords I technically need are like my 
long sword, rapier, small sword, sword and buckler, sword. You know, I, I need those because I use them regularly in my job. Um, like, you know, I don't need my copy of Capoeira. Yes. Right, but I'm a Capoeira man. Yeah, I've, <laughs> I've written, written books and workbooks on, on his system. I wanted a first edition from 1610 and I finally got one and I don't need it. I have scans already. Yeah. Yeah. So I but think it's different. Yeah. when I'm using the word need, I mean like <laughs> need it rather than require. <laughs> Okay, yeah, fair. All right. Because it feels like if you're, like, if that's the thing you're going to grab in a house fire, I feel like that's something you need, right? That's it. The heart wants what the heart wants, Guy. That's, the- that's, that's <laughs> very true. Yeah. And of course, of course, the, the wife and children are already out of the house. Oh, of course. That, yeah. Yeah. And that's I it. wouldn't go back into a burning building to save a book or a sword. I wouldn't do it. Because I'm a parent and I have, I have to stay alive for my children. Yeah, but okay. if if on the way maybe the kids could if, pick up those things on the way out, that would really help. <laughs> actually, I should keep those things in the children's bedrooms. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. <laughs> I think the children buy something to say about that. Okay, now my <laughs> la- my last my last question. Okay, somebody gives you a million quid to spend improving historical martial arts worldwide. How would you spend it? So, I do. I have done a couple of tournaments, but I'm not very good at them. <laughs> and right. I'm not very good at them because the the type of fencing I enjoy is more like Bloss and It's the, like, I could have hit you here. I'm going to move away. It's like, so I I do much, much better at that. And I feel like um, I would like to develop a fencing rule set that doesn't reward force escalation. Yeah. Because I think there's only one way that that ends and it's not going to be nice. <laughs> like It just gets more and more and more. I have an idea. I just had an idea. Tell yeah. me what you think. Okay. A tournament sword that has a, a, a connection between the blade and the hilt where <laughs> too much force is used, it breaks off in your hand. Oh, so... Yeah, so, so like, it's, it's, like it's breakable ones. It's not like the point breaks off and it's dangerous. It's yeah. literally the blade falls off the hilt if too much force is used. So let's say let's say there's a a friable glue joint or whatever, and it's it's a terrible sword for actual sword fighting, but yeah. it will it would reward placing blows, parrying whatever. But if it goes if the force goes past a past a certain point, your sword breaks and you lose. So it's funny you should say that because that actually Genius. happened. It actually happened a couple of weeks ago in class. I wasn't there. We were yeah. away. And somebody, it was the first time they'd used a steel and they used one of Bob's really old ones. I think it was a first generation, um, is it the Hamwise? Anyway, it's really, really Hamwise. old one. Yeah, yeah. Really, really, really old one. And literally the first, it wasn't even any, he just basically put something that was like, it's either a parry or a displacement. Let's say it was a displacement. Um, and the whole sword, basically, it just went straight through it. The blade fell off. The pommel fell off. <laughs> and in this comic, comic timing. So we have one, is what I'm saying. Okay. And yeah, it was very effective. Um, but yeah, so I do have some ideas. And unfortunately, they are mostly tech tech, tech solutions. But um, like, yeah, just things like judging like judging is a skill that people have to pick up it's very yeah. very taxing i've done very very little of it it's very very difficult to work out what's actually happened so yeah. what so i have this idea that we could use again because i work a lot in startups and i've been talking about physical 
objects and things like that. If we could have sensors like they do in like the um, film industry yeah. that would that would give you a 3D model in real time so you can see what actually happens. Number one, that makes replays possible so that actually people outside the HEMA community can see what on earth that we're trying to do. But also, it would really help say, oh, you do, you're doing this cut like this. You're doing this cut like you're, you're actually moving in this way, moving your body in this way. And so I would really like something that would tell me what was going on that we could use in a fencing tournament way a light touch to say well what did happen there because it's impossible to tell well it's not impossible it's just it's just a high level skill like when i was taught fencing in the 80s like sport fencing Mm. when we did kind of formal fencing there were seven people involved there was Mm. the two fencers they each had two judges was it seven no so that's two fencers two judges Mm. each so that's six and then there's the president. So yeah, it was seven mm. people, right? And the two judges watch over their fence's shoulder and look for hits on the other person. Mm. And the two fences on so the two judges on the other side look over their fence's shoulder and for hits on the other fencer. Mm. And the president's job is to decide what happened and award hits, taking into account what the judges have said. Mm. Yeah. And it's a really good system if you're on a strip. It's much more difficult if you are mm. um, moving around. But yeah. I was I was taught that, and by going through the the judging process many 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 times, and doing the presiding with my coach standing next to me, seeing how I did, I was I was literally taught it as a skill. Mm. And so you know we do similar things in in my school where we set up formal free fencing. And we have judging, but we also have um, exercises for developing fencing memory. I mean, you read mm. my book, so you, you've <laughs> right. I won't, I, won't, I won't bore the listener with it now. But the um, but and but your idea strikes me as something that it's it's it would be useful to the historical fencers, but it's most useful to the audience, especially the untrained audience. So that would be a big step towards getting historical martial arts more widely known and understood. Yeah. So if you have, so I think there's several, so again, I want to be focused on on the problem. There are loads of different solutions to this. So one of them is maybe just having um, uh, a formal way of training judges and funding right. them because it's difficult right so at tournaments it's is volunteer-led like and sp- yeah. if you have trained people that get reimbursed for their time or whatever like that that'd be interesting but yeah so it, in order to really if in order to get HEMA war more wide widely known um if you can make it something that the o- audiences can understand yeah. from a distance that's really interesting if you could have um, you know, like demonstrations and things like that, where people could understand what's happening. And I think that's probably where the effectual rules, they started to become more flamboyant because they're showing people what's happening. Their hits are different. Um, and that's very difficult at the moment when you're rewarding head hits. And it's very easy to see those because, um, for instance, I was at a, a tournament a while ago and I kept, uh, had my messer against somebody's arm Mm-hmm. Um, and then they just powered through and got a headshot. Now, that would be impossible if my messer was on their arm because in order to do that, their arm would have fallen off. Yeah. 
but it's very difficult in the moment with the rule sets to be able to do that. So I think there's there's parts of the problem. It's I think it's a complex problem, and um, not everyone will agree with me that they think it needs changing. But I think there's room for something else, I guess. But also, be really useful as a teaching tool mm. and a coaching tool. Mm. Like, because I'm, I'm often teaching people over the internet, and it's bloody hard in 2D. <laughs> yeah. Right. But if I had a 3D model of what they're doing, I mean, I yeah. can see pretty well. Um, but they can't necessarily see me that well. Yeah. Right? And and this is something that I learned in um, Aikido as well. When you can, s- sometimes the instructor doesn't know what they're doing right because they've never done it wrong. <laughs> that thing that you're doing wrong, they've never done wrong. Yeah. So it's, and it's, it can be very, very subtle. So if there's a way of, you know, you've aligned your skeleton slightly differently, right? And that's something that you get through feeling and you can't, Again, when you're working remotely with people, you can't get that feeling. That's yeah. so important through a sword. You yeah. can't get the feeling of what it feels like that tells you what the solution is that you've trained in. So um, if I if I do that, maybe a project that I'm thinking about, but again, with my startup hat on, how many people would pay for that? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Probably. But okay, but the point, the point of the question is somebody Sorry. gives you the money. Somebody Great. gives you the money. You don't have to make a business out of it. You don't have to make the money back. They just give you the money. Sorry, the dog's barking. That's all right. <laughs> he stopped. Um, yes, it's a bad habit with startups. How is this going to make money? <laughs> well, yeah, and it, it, it could. It could because honestly, but, here, but here's the problem with a lot of this, this stuff is like I did a bunch of mo- mo- motion capture for this um, Saudi startup thing in Seattle a while ago, mm. six, seven, eight years ago. I can't remember exactly. Um, but they did motion capture on me doing some various things. Mm. And then when I went back six months later to do some more for them and they showed me this, what they'd done with the previous stuff, I was like, that's not me. Interesting. Because it was moving all wrong. And they said, yeah, the problem is, guy, when you move, it doesn't look like anything. What? No, no, it's true. No, no, they're absolutely true. When I move, it doesn't look like anything. Because the sword goes from where it is to where I want it to go, and there's nothing in between. Oh, I see. Okay. It's just, it just, it looks like I'm just standing there, and then suddenly my sword is over there, and there's nothing really happens. Players want to see the movement, Mm. and, and it's very inefficient, and it's very shit, and it doesn't hit very hard. Yeah. Right? So... The, 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 the problem that we're going to deal with there, if we have these three-dimensional models doing these things, mm. is when it's really good, it doesn't look like anything. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. So we have to educate people to appreciate efficiency over <laughs> ostentatious, inefficient movement. Yeah. But did they, did they put sensors on the sword as well? Honestly, I don't remember. Because that's the other thing, right? So that, um, if you put sensors on the sword, you can see the path of path of the sword, yeah, and the path of where it would have touched a limb yeah. or something else. Mm-hmm. So to be able to track that, and then I was I was telling Bob about this idea, and he went, "You've basically just invented electric sport fencing." <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But over-engineered it. I think that's what I've brought to Maybe. this. <laughs> But yeah, that, so that is at some point I might I might start playing around with some prototypes for that. But um, if someone wants to give me a million pounds, that's way easier. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
You never know. The podcast doesn't make money for me, as we've established, but it <laughs> might make money for you. <laughs> and that would be great. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for joining me today, Joe. It's been lovely to meet you. Thank you. You too. Yeah. Um, we'll have to meet in real person at some point. Yes. <laughs> Let's do that. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Joe. You can find the episode show notes at swordschool.com forward slash podcast. While you are there, you can sign up to my mailing list and I'll send you a free copy of my book, Sword Fighting for Writers, Game Designers and Martial Artists. I'd like to thank my patrons on Patreon for their kind support of the show. It lets me know that you care about the show and want it to continue. You can join us there for behind the scenes content and to submit your questions for future guests. That's patreon.com forward slash the sword guy. Thanks to Andrew Lawrence King for the Baroque harp accents originally recorded for my Paradoxes of Defense audiobook project. And join us next week when I'll be talking to Dr. John Lennox, who is one of the founders of the International Swordsmanship and Martial Arts Convention in Lansing, which moved to Vegas to become Combat Con. He's an instructor with the Historical Martial Studies Society, an instructor for the School of Two Swords, and he has a PhD in the relationship between stage combat and personal combat from the late 16th century onwards. You definitely don't want to miss that, so you can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast from. And while you're there, please do rate the show, and if you have an extra minute, leave a review. It really does help. Thanks for listening, and I will see you next week.